0: Welcome to the most valuable fucking show you're going to listen to all week.
1: You must have a strategy for survival. That industry has been on the head of the sphere. There's a lot of money that's left on the table. It's a sexy industry, and it keeps pulling new people into it.
2: This is Unfuck My Business. Welcome to the Unfuck My Business show. I am your host, Chris Delaney, and today... We have a special guest in the house we're going to talk a little bit about building business ecosystems one of the reasons we're here is because we built an ecosystem and we decided to focus in and go all in on relationships and today's guest is somebody who leads for sure from that area let me tell you a little bit about his background and what he's involved in uh, we have roger curlin who's based here in the tampa saint Pete area he is the co-investor and founder of club saver Uh, which is designed to be a club in which you can get half off an entree and half off an alcoholic drink for a member and a guest. That was the general premise, but it's become undeniably a local excitement. Club Saver has over 1,400 members, and they are focused in various areas of the business community, and they are building their community throughout COVID as well. A little bit about Roger's background. Roger has a degree from Florida, with a focus in journalism and communications business and also has his law degree from Stetson University. He's involved in a ton of boards. I'm looking at his resume right now. I can't read them all. There's literally 20 of them, Uh, but he's involved in various incubators and also entrepreneurial ventures in order to help up and coming entrepreneurs. We've had a lot of discussion about strategy and our calls on core. With that said, I'm out of breath, but welcome to the show, Roger. What's going on, my friend?
1: Thank you very much for having me, guys. I've really enjoyed the involvement with the core leadership collective. Love the mission. Uh, love the fact that we're able to take these uh, these concepts and, and share them out because it's all about collaboration in my mind during these really uh, unprecedented times. So thank you all for having me.
2: Of course. Now, collaboration is key because I have two people who are local St. Peter's, right? I'm actually from New York, so I, I would like to draw on the experience of Jinx and Victor here. Uh, Victor, because of your background in food service, I also have a long period of time in, in the food industry, but not down here in Florida, so I know the ecosystem as well. But I know, Victor, you have uh, your food truck. I know Jinx, you're a big fan of supporting uh, the local restaurants. And you know them very well, being a native. So I would love uh, Chris, or Jinx, I should say, to uh, to take it over from here and let you lead the discussion, my friend.
0: So... I love this idea of local business ecosystems and, and, you know, we see that in Japan where they have this concept of karetsu where lots of small businesses bind together and uh, share buying power and marketing power and other sorts of benefits like that. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about how club saver came about and uh, you know how you built that network?
1: Absolutely, Chris. Well, about six years ago, uh, myself and two, two friends started a nightclub here in the St. Petersburg area called Enigma bar and lounge and so the the two managing partners myself as an investor uh, got into the Edge District and I immediately wanted to be involved with all the businesses there so went and introduced myself got to meet the owners of many of these businesses joined the board for that business district and as part of that became really good friends with Mark Ferguson who's the owner of Ferg Sports Bars one of the largest uh, sports bars in the southeast well through that relationship he put me onto a national Dining and Drinking Club that we put on at Enigma, and we were one of the launch locations. I immediately loved it, got excited, reached out to the national group to see if they needed help growing the business. They did, and I ended up working with them for six months. Well, during that six months' time, I found out the program actually had some, some pretty major flaws to it, and the company ended up closing down after six months. Myself and another local gentleman who's an entrepreneur spotted the core concept was great, but there were some flaws. So we said, hey, why don't we build this locally and fix all of the the things that were broken? And and we did that. And now uh, Club Saver, we're enjoying our fourth year. Uh, We're growing prior to COVID and we've got some great plans post COVID. So that was really kind of my my formation for the company was really looking at someone that had some flaws in a program and building a better mousetrap. Uh, But to your point, getting that, local ecosystem knowledge was really really important so
0: like you know if if your goal is to build a local business ecosystem you know what what would you recommend from your experiences in doing that what's what's the ground boots on the ground work in that
1: great question so i think it's twofold number one you have to identify uh your industry so you have to identify that vertical so everyone that's playing in your industry you've got to know that and then I also feel you've got to know your geography. So you've got to know all those other businesses around you that may have nothing to do with your business, but geographically they end up, they, they do actually.
0: In, uh, in the Japanese model, they actually have both a vertical version of the karetsu and a horizontal version of the karetsu. And they have two different names that go in front of them to specify that. And of course, you're running an industry vertical across food service providers and all the rest of that. We see lots of other types of ecosystems. Uh, you know, in Tampa, the Hispanic business community is one of those. Uh, in St. Pete, uh, what we call the most prideful city on on earth, um, the the has a, a Grand Central District kind of focused um, gay business owners ecosystem. Um, what are other types of networks? Do you think that are that are good, strong ways to build a cross section of collaborative business owners?
1: That's a great, great question, Chris. And St. Petersburg in the Pinellas County area, uh, that's my home. I've been here for for decades, so I don't have much knowledge of other groups, other de- uh, demographic areas and what they're doing, but locally, this area is a rock star. I mean, you you have so many amazing collaborations from the Entrepreneur Social Club uh, to the Keystone Mastermind Alliance to the, the national organizations like RGA, BNI, all of those networking groups really strong chambers it's not like we have one chamber we've got five strong chambers in this area right and so there there's any number of collaborations i've i've been really inspired by what goes on here and then in the charity world as well so pivoting a
0: little bit to the impacts of covid i mean food service clearly the the one of the most heavily impacted industry verticals out there how are these business associations and specifically how are networks like club saver helping to help businesses recover from the impacts of that?
1: Uh, So what I'm looking at and what I've seen is each of the business organizations out there, be they charity, be they chamber, be they business, be they, however these are, they are great communicators to their members about getting involved in helping their businesses pivot, financially survive. Uh, You've got the Fighting Chance Fund, Pinellas Cares, uh uh, information about ppp eidl all of that so i think communication has been outstanding so that's my first uh, kudos to the area is i feel they've done a really great job with that
0: so kind of a harder question i mean some businesses are are going to survive and some businesses aren't and we've already seen a a significant number of businesses that haven't Uh, when you're evaluating or you're looking at businesses you know, in your mind, what are the important things that, that really make the difference between whether or not a company survives something like this?
1: So, one, I'll look at it from the hospitality standpoint, because that's, that's where, you know, I get my hands dirty every day. And what a lot of folks don't understand, because most of us are just consumers, right? We go out, we, we dine, we drink, is the industry itself is about 30% overbuilt in this area, Right? So you have 30% more businesses that can really survive on, on the typical consumer volume. You throw on top of that a reduction in the consumer volume of anywhere from 25 to 40%, just depending on who you're talking to, and then it makes it very difficult for these businesses to survive. There's actually restaurants and bars that are performing above year-to-year numbers from last year. And so what I started to do is look at what are the uh, the assets, what are the things that help them, these these people, rise above? And there's five factors. So if you're ready for me, I'll, I'll dive into them real quick. So the five factors are, number one, it's generally an established business. It's a business that has been around for a while and has been able to ingratiate themselves in the community. So that's the number one I'm seeing success if a business has been around for a while. Number two, got to have great food, right? You have to have great food because there's so many choices, and if your dollar is now very precious on either time or finance, you've got to have great food. The third is great service, and that pairs up so often with when you go out to eat, you remember that night where you've had great food and great service in combo, and the groups that tend to do the second tend to do the third. Um, the fourth thing that I've seen is that the ones that are doing really well right now have a Delivery in a to-go business that was established, that's organized, that's well-run. And then the fifth is they're great at marketing and getting their name out there because right now it's a competition for a much smaller pool of diners out there. So those are the top five. If you check those boxes off, there's actually some restaurants overperforming their numbers from last year.
2: I think that's a really strong you know, way of looking at it, especially coming from a, a really strong restaurant community up in New York, where I'm from in the Albany area uh, near the you know, When you started to diagnose what happened during COVID, it was kind of scary because I spent nine years in the food service industry in various positions, but I know a lot of people who lost great jobs, impacted everything that was going on for them that were servers like career servers, like people who had great followings and everything else. I'm interested, Victor, you own... A food truck, right? You you have Churland Sweets, which was predominantly event driven. You guys tried some really creative stuff, but based upon what Roger just shared, how do you think that impacts your business? Those five key factors, do you feel like those are um, a great list to follow? Are you seeing it in your own business? What's like the real day to day for you, like in that
3: business? Interesting. Um, I, it seems like those those five factors apply also for the for the food truck industry as well. I mean, um, you know, having great food, great ser- service. Um, those are things that are a must, right? If you if you if you're working with making food and, and and selling it to the public. You know, for the food trucks, and I and I've said this in the past, um, we were heavily depending on um, outdoors events. St. Pete is a great city for that as well. We have all sorts of festivals going on in the fall and um, Throughout the year, pretty much, we have wellness festivals, reggae festivals, all sorts of music stuff where people go go outdoors. When COVID hit, of course, um, all those were pretty much canceled. So we were kind of forced to just go into small communities, small um, neighborhoods and try to kind of make a living, right? So I'm interested to hear, Roger, your, your, your point of view when it comes to the food truck industry. I don't know any actually food truck right now that's doing better than last year. They're just kind of surviving just by, by doing these small events. What, what's your take on that in, in terms of the community and the food trucks? I'm sure that you, you know you understand some of that some of that as well.
1: Absolutely. What's so interesting about the hospitality business and about the food industry business, right is you have these major 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 categories. So you have the way you can get food, you can go to a grocery store, you can go to a restaurant. And then there's these other sliver categories. Food truck industry is one. The other one is this new up and coming industry of the food plan delivery services. So either heat and eat or cook and eat, right? So those are the ways that you can get your food. As you said, the food truck industry has been like they are so event centric and we have basically had all of our events shut down now for close to eight months. The good news is I feel like events are very close to coming back again in controlled environments in, in safe safe and effective ways where the community uh, will embrace that. To your point, I have seen some food trucks really pivot and do neighborhoods where they're going to do a night at this particular neighborhood. So there's some great pivots that are out there for the food truck industry. I'm excited to see what's up. There's good and there's bad when it comes to the underlying expenses, right, of having a brick and mortar versus mobile. So that's that's a whole nother discussion. But I think there is room to pivot.
0: It was interesting when you when you talk about your five key points, we we kind of have a, you know, a, a sort of mantra around here that the market doesn't give a shit about your feelings. And it's funny because marketing is driven by feelings. And so much of the the encouragement and the collaboration that we do is driven by feelings. I think a lot of us have a sense of wanting to work within the business community and and you know help each other out. I know I spend a ton of pro bono time, like giving out advice and that sort of thing. Um, and yet your five key points really are all just sort of universally applicable points. Once you translate them into the different vertical language, you know, about be a good, strong business who does business well, <laughs> you know. So then when, when we look at things like you know uh, community efforts um, to save businesses that are struggling and things along that line, I mean, that sort of seems like it kind of goes against those five key points. Is there a point to those efforts?
1: Wow, what an outstanding question. So one of the things I always think about is who's gonna survive, right? Who can survive? Because uh, the analogy I use, if you've got a riptide that's taken a group of people out I can only swim out and maybe bring back one or two. If I try to bring everybody, I'm gonna drown, we're all gonna drown. And so those types of outreach to save community businesses, I love them when they're reaching to a business that can survive. And so unfortunately we've got a bit of Darwinism going on, not everyone's gonna survive. I wish that was not the truth. Um, And I wanted to make one other comment on what you said a minute ago about those five factors you would be surprised how many businesses do not check all those five boxes and before could survive, before COVID could survive without those five boxes checked. I'm just saying it's it's going to be very, very unlikely they can now. So that's that's kind of a, a real wow, and think about it, and you'll, you'll get to say, wow, well, yeah, I do remember a place that didn't check all those boxes. They seem to be doing fine. I just don't think those types of businesses will make it now.
3: I have a question here, uh, Roger. On your five points, um, the number one point you said was um, well-established businesses. So I'm asking you, are there any room for new restaurants coming out? Yes, there are. And here's the, here's the interesting part of this.
1: So right now, it's like this factory lineup of new places opening. You you can take any of the business uh, e and newsletters out there and media reports. It's one after another. So as soon as a restaurant goes down, something else is filling its place. And in fact, there are places that used to be retail that are now being converted into restaurant space. So the overbuild is actually getting worse now, not better. And, and with that, a lot of people like to go to the newest thing and be there, enjoy it. It's 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 new. It's, it's exciting. It usually has a buzz. But then... There's another shiny object, and they run to that. And there's another shiny object, and they run to that. So you're going to have a honeymoon period as a new business. It's much shorter than it used to be, and you have got to absolutely be amazing to link people into you, and you are going to have to continue to do that over and over and over and over again and make sure those other check marks are rocking. The food Mm -hmm. rocks, the service rocks, you're marketing the heck out of your business, and, and then you have a shot. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's tough right now.
2: You know, one of the things that used to come up a lot in, in the food service industry was you, and and I'm going to speak for experience up in New York, but you would have like these really established restaurants that have been around for 20, 30 years with a great chef and stuff like that. People would come in, they'd want to be seen. It was like, what did that guy cook this week? His Chilean sea bass was amazing. And then all of a sudden consumers started realizing they had choices and options, right? And then Yelp became a thing. And people are looking at reviews and all this other stuff. And now people have more access to give comments about, you know, what happens. Like people expect great service now. So the expectation, the bar has been shifted, but it's super interesting because having only lived in St. Pete for like a year and a half, when this whole thing happens, I remember seeing some restaurants that got absolutely demolished and then seeing some that came back to the forefront and said, we're charging the same price. You got to pick it up. And the community responded. There's a clear distinction between the restaurants that are failing and going to be put out of business versus the ones that are doing well. My hypothesis is we're talking about community and the marketing efforts went towards community and story and like ethos and mythos of the business, while many other restaurants were fearful of change. You know, is that change of like marketing and stuff like that? Well, we do this our way. We are we're already booked. So what do you think restaurants? that are going out of business aside from these five key points in the marketing area, particularly what is working right now during COVID in the marketing field that separates somebody who's going to have that customer choose to go in their front door or get delivery versus somebody else.
1: That's a great question. So I want to, I want to rephrase the question. So I'm answering it right. So what we're saying is what can a restaurant do from a marketing standpoint to make sure they're checking that box and they have a shot if they've got the other boxes filled, correct?
2: Absolutely, and as big picture as possible, so it can be achieved by anybody.
1: Great. So I view marketing, especially right now, as an octopus. So the business is the head of the octopus, and the arms are the different marketing tools and techniques that they can use. The absolute first thing the business must do is they must have a strategy. As part of my Club Saver relationship, one of the things we do is we provide consulting and marketing and organizational strategies for our partners. Free of charge, it's part of our collaboration. And so I've just finished my second one, I'm on my third, and the eyes that are getting opened by the partners I'm working with, it's, it's like amazing and it's so exciting. And so those are the ones that are gonna succeed, where they understand their business is the head of the octopus, they have to have a strategy, and they have to get those arms working. And the biggest part about marketing is you've got to be able to track and trace the effectiveness and the roi of it most marketing that restaurants do and small businesses do it's not tracked so how the heck do you know if it's working or not so yes right now you have to have a strategy input maybe it's 10 arms right it's a special octopus but you've got to be on social media you have to know your avatar if your avatar is an in, in elderly community you're going to be really struggle because right now that's the community that is the least likely to dine out right now. There is some effective print stuff that's going on. It's about getting a story out into the media, right? A press release. There's been the most amazing stories that have come out have been by pivots, by local restaurateurs that have gotten the word out about their
2: pivots. I think that's really strong, right? So you're talking about the story behind the business and knowing your avatar really well, which I think for – one of the biggest obstacles that that most people face in small business is committing to their niche, right? Committing to the people that they actually serve because they're so worried about losing opportunity. So they want to eat everything all at once. Are you finding that consumers are more discerning now that they're equipped with so much information? We live in a social media world, too. I mean, there are some restaurants. I mean, Victor does it very well with his Instagram and stuff like that. But many restaurants miss such a huge opportunity with social media because they just don't know what to do. Like, what am I doing with this social media? Or the key metric is we have somebody we pay an hour and they, they post more than we do. right? So you talked about the measurement of the results. What do you think would be a low-hanging fruit just to implement on social media? Like right now that somebody listening could just take that and be like, cool, today I can put that right on Instagram or Facebook or something about my business and get the ball rolling.
1: Right. So I view social media as, as having two parts. One is, is a legitimacy factor. On your social media, your Facebook, your Insta, and if you have other stuff, you have to be developing your brand, speaking to your avatar, just to be legitimate for people that are coming to check you out. So that's piece one. Piece two is if you actually have the funds to be able to do outreach outside of your own circle and whether it's putting up a really cool contest. I remember a restaurant that had a contest for Build a grinder. Like, you build a grinder. You give me the recipe for your grinder. The restaurant picked its five top, then put those on a poll on Facebook, and it went rock star because all the top five you know, people that designed it got their friends to go and vote and vote. So that's just one example of, of outreach that you could do. I'm going to go back to my octopus head. You've got to have a strategy for taking social media and making it work for you. And if it's not your sweet spot, if you don't have knowledge in it, you're gonna have to delegate and you and you're gonna have to spend a little bit of money but when it's done right it's Rock star it's, it's it's so valuable
3: so I'll make a comment and then I ask you a question um, I've been in St Pete for about 20 years and, I, and I've seen kind of like the, the evolution of, of the eating experience we went from you know having just a booth and, and, the, and the waiter comes to you and all that to these great experiences? When you go to any restaurant in downtown pre-COVID, you'll find, you know, just, just amazing structures and and, and art. And, and it became kind of an experience. You know, that you have these uh, tables, they're like community tables where you sit with other people you don't know. So that that seemed to be like innovation for me, like how it was morphing from just going to have food to just have an experience. But now after COVID, I'm wondering what is innovation in this industry? Who is innovating and, and what does that look like perhaps? In the next you know few years perhaps what, what's your opinion on that
1: that's a great question but i, I wanted i want to take something you said and underline it so i call it save s-a-v-e so right now people are looking for safety attentiveness value and an experience so they've got their money to spend when they're going out they're typically looking for those four things and so as an establishment, making sure you understand what the consumer is looking for helps you craft that. And I love what you said about and it's not just downtown St. Pete. We've got, you know, Gulfport's got some amazing scenes. We've got stuff coming up on 4th Avenue in 9th and 16th they're having little renaissance. So there's some really cool restaurant circles around town. The innovation is coming in number one on the organizational technology that's there for restaurants and bars. The staffing technology that's out there. I really feel the lowest hanging fruit to somebody's question earlier is focusing on staff education and empowerment. The most influential part of your experience, if you're sitting down and dining out, is how that server takes care of you. You know, you can have a food uh, experience where the food's like, yeah, it's good, it's good, not great, it's good. If you have rock star service, you're never going to forget that place you're gonna tell people about it, right? And and it's happening right now. There's some very, very smart curators and restaurateurs that are understanding this, that are investing extra time and effort uh, in that. And that's why we partnered up with the Hospitality Leadership Program at USF to really underscore that and did a series of videos during COVID lockdown uh, to help restaurants focus on that in, in several other areas. Great question. I've got a two-parter
0: for you. Um, the first part is restaurants are notoriously low-margin. In fact, I've never been interested in getting into that space because the margin seems super small to me for the amount of work that goes in. It's very much a passion-driven business. So, if I'm normally at a two to three percent net margin, and now I'm running at a negative five percent net margin due to the impact of covid, what are the first things that I should be doing from an emergency life saving sort of perspective on how to keep my business alive as a restaurant?
1: Also a great question. So the first thing going back to my strategy for marketing is you have to have a business strategy that has a finance column and an organizational column. I had I had one of the restaurants that I'm knowledgeable and, and and have spoken to not in my program but I'm involved with a lot of restaurants that aren't uh, they came up with a technology which allowed them to cut their serving staff in half and actually upgrade the uh, the experience for the consumer through a uh, through an app system that was quite amazing and innovative and, and they created it and so they were immediately able to cut their, staffing overhead, and they ended up boosting their overall revenue uh, because of this technology is really awesome. And so you want to look at every single expense item that you have, and in some cases you can delay expenses. Sometimes you can work with deals with providers and vendors. A lot of times, and we as people have this, we have costs that we're taking into uh, into our wallet which we don't even need, and it's just because we've always done it and we haven't really reviewed it. So. Lots of loans out there, lots of grants out there. Hopefully, knock on wood, we get some more help for this industry because to Chris's point, there is no other industry except the hospitality industry. You have to take your mask off to eat and drink. You can do every other thing out there with a mask on, but the eat and the drink part of it. And so that industry has been on the head of the spear along, I think airlines are, are pretty close. But the airline industry dwarfs is dwarfed by the hospitality industry as far as volume, impact, employees, all of that. So then
0: the second half of that question, circling back to the fact that these are passion driven businesses, and I have seen more entrepreneurs than I can count ride that ship down into the abyss. When do you know when it's time to let go?
1: So it's it's different for everybody. Right? Because one of the things I, I like to tell um, folks in the community when you look at a restaurant, you have no idea how stable or unstable that restaurant is just by looking at how many people are in that restaurant at any given time. Right, Because it's typically Friday and Saturday when you see that. That's not where the money is at. Friday and Saturday is the price of doing business. You must be packed on Friday and Saturday and get a couple of rolls just to be in the business. Your actual profits are more attuned to that Sunday through Thursday. We also don't know, does the restaurant own their property? If they own their property, they have a lot more flexibility in their future than if they're renting. You don't know how long their lease is. You don't know what they signed it for. You don't know what kind of management expenses they have. So as as the community, we really don't know the stability or instability and I, I want to flash back briefly to another question you had earlier so USF had a great presentation at one of the startup weeks in the profitability of a restaurant in Florida And this was 2018 numbers I believe so but they're, they're fairly stable around that is 2.67 percent right so very 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 low profit but it's it's low profit because the line that they need to cross for profitability they shape their businesses to cross that line. My philosophy is, and my business's philosophy of Club Saver is, I want to do business with someone that's already over that line, and I want to put a big chunk on top of it, right? And so it's, it's about not trying to cross that line. It's about blowing past that line and thinking of all the ways that you can do that. And so there's a lot of money that's left on the table, I feel, by um, restaurants that are out there.
3: Roger, are we out of the woods with COVID, or uh, are we rebounding on a V-shaped type of rebound, or are we going to be used like a U type of situation? Is it going to get worse before it gets better? What say you, my friend?
1: Sure, that's a great question. So from a health perspective, I'm a big fan of science and math. And, And the best I can tell is we will be struggling with the COVID illness for probably about a year. Might be a little bit less, might be a little bit more, but we're likely going to struggle with the illness for close to a year. I tell my businesses I work with, strategize like we are. Because if it's shorter than that, awesome, right? And then we can start to rebound quicker. Um, But if you're thinking, oh, you know, the vaccine's going to come out um, on Election Day and and we're all going to be, you know, well, and Q1's going to be awesome. Well, if it doesn't and you've strategized for that, you're screwed and so that's my philosophy from the health standpoint from the industry standpoint I'm very 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 scared for the economics that are going on which means for every restaurant that closes another restaurant pops in its place that is better equipped to hang on the other place closed for a reason the new place opens up they have an influx of money they've got investors they're able to hang on longer so the overbuild is going to stay with us longer than it typically would because of the sexiness of the industry, right? If you're in a group of people, you're at a party, and, you know, it's one where you know everyone in your bubble and your masks are down and you're having a drink, and somebody says, oh, I'm an accountant, okay? Somebody says, I own a restaurant. Everybody turns to that person and starts to ask questions. Nothing against accountants. I love my accountant. But you get what I mean. It's a sexy industry, and it keeps pulling new people into it.
2: I have an interesting question with that and the one that you answered before that the Jinx asked too. So you were talking about a business that pivoted. This is a strategic standpoint question, but I want to bring this down to people who might be listening who also might be one of those servers or bartenders who got laid off or something happened. So we talked about the, the restaurant industry having notoriously low margins. I think it's important to predicate that on the idea of They're low margins, which means you have to manage things on a day-to-day basis, inventory, food costs. One of the biggest expenses in a restaurant is facility, uh, rents, right? and then labor, which is a variable thing most times. Some people have contracts where they're variable based on foot traffic. We had that a lot in New York, in malls and stuff like that. But what's interesting is my mind goes to this thought process of saving the business itself. right? You talked about the undertow, bringing people out, the tsunami or whatnot. The business needs to lay off labor. So we create an app-based system, which now puts everything at the control of the guest, right? My question is, this is going to be a very like focused question on the impact of the people who staff the restaurants. I think about what they're going to be doing, because I put myself in those shoes, about like if I was a bartender and I was making, I don't know, let's say, and, and, and this is interesting too, because St. Pete... Having moved down here and having a little exposure, I look at the surrounding industry. There's no real industry aside from hospitality and entrepreneurship, in St. Pete specifically. So rents are very high compared to other parts of the country. So my question is, the outlook on not just the industry, but more so the people, what do you think is going to happen to this industry where people would fund their way through college or their business startup funds, bartending and serving or using it as an additional like add-on what would you recommend to that person and how? what do you think the industry is going to be like for them moving forward?
1: Wow, so that's a little octopus question. There's a lot of moving parts to that one too. I want to talk first about going into COVID, staffing was one of the most difficult things in the industry. And if you went by a restaurant and they had one of those signs with the slide-in letters, it was more often saying hiring, hostess needed, cook needed than you know, whatever the special grouper was. And so it was a really tough thing going into the industry to have a a great, committed, ongoing staff. So that was going into COVID, and now a lot of people have been laid off, and a lot of people are now reinvestigating if this is going to be the role for them. And so I think it's going to have people move out of the industry permanently. And I don't want to get into the debate of good, bad versus right now of that happening. But I think a lot of people are going to move out of that industry and move into other industries. Now, what that means locally, um, we have some really great up-and-coming industries. To your question, Chris, that are in finance and technology and medical and health. And you know the city's really putting uh, money and time behind that. So. My thought is it's going to migrate people out of this industry from an employee standpoint because there's just not enough jobs for
2: them. I mean, I tie all of my client-focused work from my time in the service industry, knowing, anticipating needs, human relationships. I was a firm advocate of you should probably spend time in the service industry before you go to college because it's relationship building. And people who are great at what they do, I think back to some of the bartenders and servers I knew who made a good living, six-figure incomes, because of their knowledge of food and their sommelier and their background in wine and and how to pair stuff. And and we would bring these, you know, groups of us to restaurants to help with the openings because it was like, Oh, so-and-so is serving over there bartending, bring everybody we know him. So it was more like an entrepreneurial venture, right? It was like teaching, you know, staff how to think like an entrepreneur. You're renting space in the restaurant to serve that product. You make tips it's variable. My interest here is in connecting it back to what you said, your five key points is, do you think the anticipation or expectation of the consumer on the metric of great service will change? Because the great service many times is like one of the products people come for, aside from just the food. There's generally an experience, right? The great restaurants, the great nightclubs, they know about an experience when it comes to you know bringing people to their restaurants. So do you think by having like an app or something more technology related or having a skeleton crew and stuff like that, will have a direct impact on the expectations to the point where people may not even be interested to come to certain places anymore because their favorite person's not there.
1: The expectation,
2: I feel, is, is shifting
1: and will shift. And I think some of those expectation shifts will be permanent. I think it, in the hospitality realm, I think it comes down to what category you're servicing. So are you, quote-unquote, the old fine dining which I don't even like that concept because I think it's it's such a dying concept. I like, uh, you know, upper casual instead of fine dining. So you have upper casual, you have casual, you have fast casual, you have food trucks, you have concepts. So I think it really depends on the avatar and where you are sitting your your restaurant or your business. I, I want to give a shout out to a new place opening called the Whiskey Ex- Exchange by the Thirsty First team and their concept of how they're, promoting the, the bar prices in kind of a stock market fashion and, and their their gorgeous layout there and their attention to customer service, they're talking to a particular avatar and they're shaping that to Victor's point as a brand new business opening up. Luckily, Greg has an established other business and a relationship in town which people have come to know. So, I think it's really that shift of expectation is going to be based on the avatar in the channel, the vertical, the the sub-vertical of that particular location? I hope that answers that.
2: Yeah, directly. That was a really targeted question because I I think it's really interesting to because this is requiring people to be very strategic, right, which is a challenge because we typically start a restaurant because we had a passion, to Jinx's point. Love this kind of food. Maybe mom made this or something else, and then it caught on. You got a little community, and the next thing you know, all of a sudden it's like you have to adapt or die, which is kind of a tricky thing. but. The final question I have, and I'm going to point this out to everybody, so I'd like all of us to answer this question, which is we kind of touched on a little bit earlier. How do you know when to quit? When do you know it's time for the endeavor to end, the journey's over, and to either pivot or move away from the space completely? I think that's an interesting question to think about. We talked about margins, but there has to be a desire and ambition to drive beyond the problem. So when's enough enough? When do you decide to just pull out and just say, been real.
1: So I'll, I'll go first, and, and a, my apologies for not answering that earlier, I think I got sidetracked on, on a sub question to that.
2: We do that all the time.
1: I think the first analysis, and I hate to, to bang the drum, is the strategy. So I think you must have a strategy for survival. You've got to write that down. What is my strategy to survive? So once you've done that, and then you look at that plan and say, I don't see a path forward to profitability for this business. And so you've got to have a financial awareness of where you are at and where you can get to. And that's reasonably, right? There is not going to be a fantasy um, group, a rugby team that comes in and, you know, saves your business. And so you've got to do that strategy. Look at it. And if you do not have a financial path back to profitability, then that's the first check mark. The second is you might be able to do that, but it's going to kill you. It's literally going to prevent you from having a life and having a family. And, and when you get back to that point of profitability and it's, it takes you whatever amount of time and then you have to sustain that by giving up your life, don't do it because we're, we're in this industry for a passion. And if your passion gets demoralized and damaged, um, it's not worth it. I also want owners to understand if you make that decision, to close, and to recreate elsewhere, to pivot, to do something else—that is not failure. You know, life—we get one track around the 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 earth. And closing a business, I think uh, I think Wolfgang Puck said it. And, and and if it's not him, I'm sorry. But basically, said he learned more from one of his restaurants that failed than all his ones that succeeded. So oftentimes, it's our um, our stopping and restarting. And I've done that multiple times in my life, uh, either forced on me or chosen by me. And I always come out with a whole new path where I meet a bunch of new people and then I'm able to succeed again. So it's success delayed by closing. So that's that's kind of my, that's my thought on it.
2: What about for you, Jinx? How do you, how do you know when to quit?
0: I mean, the answers are kind of similar, I think, although I might be a little bit more, I don't know if I want to say cold, but succinct, maybe. Um, if if, if the amount that I'm gonna to have to spend to save the business exceeds a threshold that I've already established according to my strategy that I've laid out, that's definitely a deal breaker right there. You know, if if I'm gonna to have to go into significant debt with the hope of saving a business as a gamble, that I'm gonna be looking real hard at that decision because you know, then there's a possibility that I could come out the backside with no business and no money and no opportunity to go pivot to something else, you know? So that's always the first big one for me. But the second one for me is, do I still have a passion for it? Um, you know, there, there's so much emotional work that has to be done as part of running a business and you've got to be able to stay motivated and energetic and enthusiastic. You're the ambassador for your product or your brand. You know, if, if you find yourself unable to do that, that's another good sign that it's just time to go. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs run into this space where we're so beaten in the head about being 100% upbeat all the time and beyond that grind and just go, 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 go. And if it's not working, uh, you're not working hard enough and and that sort of thing. And, and I think that's what leads us down some of these darker paths where we see that entrepreneurs have a higher suicide rate than others, for instance, and, and higher instances of uh, uh, mental issues. Uh, for instance, because we are expected to keep pounding in this direction, even when we're eating shit. I have long, long since given up that concept of just eating shit and fighting my way through it. If, if that's what it takes for that business to succeed, I, I don't want to be the one that takes that ride.
2: What about you, Victor?
3: I'm kind of with Jinx on this, man. So, you know, when you when you create a business, um, you, you have to have a certain passion for it. And when it stops being fun, when it's not, when it's not, um, not only not profitable, of course, that's kind of the, the the big thing, right? If it's not making any money, why do it? But when it's not fun for you, when it when you when you lost a passion, when it's a headache, when it's a, a source of a stress, high stress, at that point, it's probably it's probably best for you to kind of retire from that particular uh, place. But I I also believe it's different from everybody. You know, some some owners, believe it or not, are there just for the grind of it. And, and they like the, you know, where are they going to do if, if they don't open the restaurant anymore? And even though they're not making huge money, they're able to at least make a living. So if that's your thing and, and you're passionate about what you're selling, you know, keep at it. But but at the end of the day, man, if, you, if you're not making any money and you're not having fun, there's no reason to keep it open. I have one question for you, Roger. Um, I'm asking for a friend, by the way. What would you tell a food trucker who is contemplating going brick and mortar?
1: what's happening in the industry and in other industries the same way is we have a lot of unknown so until we have more certainty the plan to wait is a really really good plan is a really really good plan Um, and so that food truck person I would say learn to pivot like crazy like think of amazing things that you can do with that food truck because you're gonna up your following you're gonna up your recognition and when you do choose to go brick and mortar. If you do choose to go eventually, you're gonna, you know, it'll be amazing. So earn your cred, keep doing the the food truck, but wait on getting a brick and mortar.
2: I hope your friend heard that, Victor.
1: <laughs>
2: to um to hit back on that last question too, I think you guys hit on it. But um when it comes to the prevailing thought around building a business, for me, there's three prevailing thoughts that I have immediately. The first criteria for me is having fun. If you don't have fun, there's other ways to make money. There are people who find niches online that just drive e-commerce sites and they just like it because it's fun. It makes them a shit ton of money and they'll brag about it online. Do something that you actually enjoy. That's my number one thing. If it's not fun for me, now I'm not saying like, hey, we got to solve a problem. It doesn't feel like fun. The overall premise is I have to enjoy the people I'm around and what we're actually doing. Otherwise, fuck that. You're not going to get the best energy I have in that process. The second thing is making money. As somebody who operates in the rules of the game of this country, I desire to make money for my time so that I can work in other areas or use that effectively for change or for influence, whatever needs to happen with the capital because you need capital to run the business. And then my third thing is helping people. And the reason I say that is what you said earlier about the undertow process. You can't save or help people if you don't have money. And you can't do that if you don't have time. So. I'm a firm believer in start a business not just to do something fun, but to also employ people and to give opportunities. That's a big part of anything I want to be a part of. But um, quitting can be tough because I find that there's no thought process of what does this look like five years from now? The first question I ask somebody is, would you do this every single day of your life without question? And if not, don't do it because running a restaurant is a fucking lifestyle. You know, So I think that that's a, that's a really tricky thing. But um, this has been a great conversation. We have a little ritual that we do here at the Unfuck My Business show. I'm going to turn it over to Jinx, and he is going to hit you, sir, with our lightning rounds. Go for it, sir.
0: Don't think about it too much. Just answer the question quickly. What's your cocktail of choice? Southern Comfort on the Rocks. Ooh, nice. And your go-to de-stress method?
1: Uh, just to be alone for a little bit. Hmm.
0: I'm with that. Apple or PC? Apple. Still the reigning champ in this particular uh, uh, conversation. Peanut butter, smooth or crunchy? Uh, smooth. Okay. And the one I think most people struggle to be honest with, what's your favorite insult?
1: You remind me of Trump. Am I allowed to do that? <laughs>
2: <laughs> that was good, man. That was really good.
0: While we take no political stance as part of this podcast, I find that amusing.
2: That's the hilarious. Opinions, the opinions contained within in no way represent the <laughs> 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 Love it, man. Roger, as a way for people to connect with you, you've given us so much wisdom in this conversation, so much actionable information. Um, how can people connect with you? What are your social media handles, emails, website? What's the what's the number one way to communicate? We'll put the rest down in the show notes.
1: Absolutely. So we're we're blessed, and we have most of the Club Saver handles. Uh, and for folks listening, it's C L U B as in boy, S as in Sam, A V as in victory, O R not E R Club Savor, like you're savoring the food. So it's ClubSaver.com for our website. My email, because I love, I love, I love helping. So if you're in the industry at all, it's not about joining my club. It's about anything I can do to connect and help. It's Roger, R-O-G-E-R at clubsaver.com. Those are the two main, and then we can go from there.
2: Love it, love it. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Can't wait until this goes live and for people to connect with you in this mission. Very, very excited from the things that we've talked about. So here we are. We're at the end of the show, right? We talked a little bit about what it's required to build an ecosystem in the business world. We talked a lot about what works, what doesn't, especially from the hospitality industry and taught to a true legend in the community of somebody who's actually out there doing it from a place of passion and resolve and backing it up with real live data. Encourage you to go back to this one a few times. And for everyone on the show, guys, my name is Chris and we will see you next Tuesday. What the fuck are you waiting for? Take what you learn in this episode and do something with it.
0: You'll find all the links and resources we talked about in our show notes for this episode. Go to unfuckmybusiness.com to subscribe to the show.